Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm your co-host, Justin Bullock. Back with you, with me, as usual, is Greg Galls. How are you doing, Greg? Uh, asymptomatic, Justin, and, uh, and uh, hunkered down at home. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad that you're asymptomatic. I'm glad that you're hunkered down at home. Uh, I'm also asymptomatic. I also am hunkered down at home. You know, before the uh, before the pandemic, I think in the past nine months, I may have spent more than three nights in a row in my home, uh, maybe once or twice. And I have now, as my wife can attest, uh, been here 14 nights in a row, um, which I don't know what to do with that. How's the marriage holding up, okay? Uh, I think she still loves me. I mean, we haven't been married that long. So we still kind of have some of that positive glow, uh, but uh, let it be known that we do live in a travel trailer. We are both working from home and we're sharing my personal hotspot because the campground does not have quality Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know uh, given, given, given the, the burdens that Americans are, 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 are bearing in this crisis, you undoubtedly are at the top. I, I think I think I'm actually uh, getting off quite well, uh, better than I certainly deserve for sure. Um, so last time we met, uh, you know, it's been COVID-19 all the time now uh, in the rest of the world and uh, on the podcast. Uh, we kind of had our first uh, real focus on this a couple of weeks ago during our students' uh, spring break, where we were encouraging them to uh, start social distancing and, and stay home. Our last episode was uh, with Professor Andrew Nazios. Um, and we kind of really started laying out uh, what pandemics are, uh, how this one has been playing out a little bit, and what are some of the some of the types of responses where we were a week ago. Um, uh, Professor Natsios had had seen some things kind of internationally and worked in disaster management, so he had some nice uh, lenses there. And we actually have two really exciting guests with us this evening who. Uh, following kind of the public health and pandemic uh, expert lens, who I think are gonna be able to give us some uh, additional information. Um, and with us, we have Gerald Parker and Christine Blackburn. And um, uh, I wanna take a moment and let them introduce themselves and then we're gonna jump right into it this week. Does that sound good by you, Greg? All good, let's get into All right. it. Uh, Christine, how about we start with you? Just a little bit of your background and uh, why, uh, why you come to this conversation as a pandemics expert. Sure, um, okay, so I'm an assistant research scientist and the deputy director of the Pandemic and Biosecurity Policy Program with the Scowcroft Institute. And my background is kind of unique. I did an interdisciplinary PhD. So I got a degree in political science, communication and veterinary sciences. And in my doctoral work, I, um, I built mathematical models of pandemics and looked at how biological elements of disease interact with uh, like the social elements, so the people elements, all that stuff we're trying to do with social distancing, how those things come together with um, risk communication to make a more effective pandemic response or a less effective pandemic response. Excellent. Well, uh, I want to get yeah, into some of that. Do you have anything that you can bring to the table about this crisis? Well, <laughs> 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 no, we were just having this conversation in class about ways. What are the more effective ways to convey the risks in a pandemic, uh, in particular, and some of the challenges there? And um, and so that's something I, I definitely want to come back to. Um, thanks so much for making the time. I know, as an expert in this area, and as everything going on, you are um, quite busy. Um, so thanks for being with us. We also have with us Gerald Parker. Gerald, um, how are you, sir? Is it okay if I call you Jerry? Howdy, absolutely. Jerry with a G. Jerry with a G. So um, give us a little bit of background, Jerry, on how you come to this conversation and uh, why uh, you also are a good authority to talk about pandemics with us today. Well, I, I, um, I spent uh, my career in biodefense, public health preparedness, pandemic preparedness, health security, really kind of straddled uh, public health preparedness and, and national security, my career. Uh, most of, I uh, was in the Army 26 years, most of that at Fort Detrick, and a lot of that within the U United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. 
the Army's only uh, maximum biocontainment laboratory. I was a deputy commander, commander of the lab back in the day. And when I left the Army, I went to the Department of Homeland Security for about a year and was drafted to come to the Department of Health and Human Services just before what I think everybody now knows as the Office of the ASPR, uh, which is the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at um, Health and Human Services. I actually helped stand up that office when, when it was authorized by the pandemic and Public Health Preparedness um, Original Act in 2006. Um, I ended up my government career as a deputy, and I was a principal deputy assistant secretary for ASPR while I was at HHS. And I ended up my government career as a deputy assistant secretary for chemical and biological defense in the Pentagon. And then I've been at uh, Texas A&M for um, six years now. I am the uh, director of the pandemic and biosecurity policy program within at the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs within the Bush School of Governments and Public Service. And I'm also Associate Dean for Global One Health at the College of Veterinary Medicine. So I think, Justin, what this means is you and I should shut up this <laughs> I was having the same thought. I, uh, I don't think I'm going to have anything to contribute. Um, so, well, I want to get into how we're doing, uh, like how we're doing in our response, how we're doing as a country. Um, but maybe b before we get there, um, we got a little bit of this in the last episode, but uh, and either of you that feels more comfortable doing this, maybe just give us the 10,000 foot view of how did we get to where we are in a, a pandemic, which was declared, I think, about two weeks ago um, with kind of now cases in the U.S. kind of uh, still exponentially going up. And it's not true everywhere, but still still true here. So what's kind of the just the, the background information of, of COVID-19 and and where we are currently situated uh, in the in kind of the phase of a pandemic, if, if that's the right language for it. Sure, Dr. Blackburn, you, you mind if I start? Go ahead. So, um, so this, this really kind of came to the world's attention uh, on 31st of December when China notified the WHO uh, that there was some unusual cases of pneumonia uh, in Wuhan, China. And things began to kind of quickly accelerate. Um, I think there was a little bit of misinformation, perhaps slow communication, because it looks like now that probably the first cases were probably at least mid-November. Um, but things began to accelerate about the 23rd or 24th of January, if I remember correctly, when it was reported that um, Wuhan was a, essentially put on a, a lockdown and a severe draconian lockdown. And then that, it, uh, expanded over the next few days to um, a, a lockdown of Hubei province, so probably involved 50 to 60 million people that were on um, a, a really a draconian lockdown type type measures that only could be done really in China. Um, and then uh, at the end of that month, um, the, um, the World Health, um, um, actually, um, uh, yeah, finally the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency of international concern. Uh, the Secretary of HHS the next day declared a public health emergency for the United States. Um, uh, President Trump uh, uh, also announced some travel restrictions and travel bans uh, specifically for foreign nationals coming from um, China into the U.S. And so that really began what was officially what I would call our containment strategy. And so we were trying to contain the virus from coming from China or anywhere else in the world where it began to, to, to spread to keep the virus out of the United States. And why is that important? That containment strategy actually was, was to slow the spread of a virus from another part of the world in the United States. It's extremely impossible, really it is impossible um, to stop a virus from traveling around the world, something like this. But it did buy us time. The containment strategy was something to buy us time. One, to, uh, to, to blow off the dust of our preparedness plans. Uh, one, to rev up our scientific engine across the world and in the United States to better understand the virus, because we still, there's a lot of things we don't understand about this virus. But, and, and we need to have a better understanding because that's going to guide our public health response. And so that really is about to, to, buy, to, to buy its time. The WHO subsequently declared a, 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 a pandemic. And be before they declared a pandemic, they actually began to talk about the infodemic, 
And we can go back to that in questions because the infodemic is about bad information that's also circulating around that hampers our response, response efforts and actually puts people in danger. So we have clearly, clearly reached an inflection point about three weeks ago where we had to transition from not the, contain, the containment strategy, but to a mitigation plus a containment strategy. And so that mitigation strategy is now where we're having to um, essentially um, slow the spread of the virus down in our own communities. And you've heard a lot um, um, about flattening the curve. And so that flattening of the curve, every outbreak is going to have a, a, a curve where there's a rapidly escalating number of cases, it reaches a peak, and then the curve goes back down. So we were in that rapidly escalating, exponential escalation of that curve right now. And so our goal in the mitigation phase of this is to flatten that curve so the peak is lower and maybe we spread it out longer. And the goal is to hopefully reduce the strain on our healthcare system and hospitals, and that'll reduce the number of deaths uh, that could happen. So we've gone from, from uh, initial recognition, to summarize, an initial recognition of uh, pneumonia, strange pneumonia cases in Wuhan, to the containment strategy here in the United States, to the mitigation plus uh, containment where, where we can. So that's kind of in summary where we're at containment and mitigation, and we're clearly in the mitigation phase now here in the United States and around the world. Christy, what do the models say? About how it's going to end up, or what do you, what do you mean? Uh, where, yeah, where, where we are and, and, what, and kind of what are the alternatives based on different public policy reactions? Um, well, okay, so I haven't seen any models that are talking about different public policy reactions per se. It's just talking about, you know, the, the range that could occur. So, and, that, and that's based on a lot of assumptions. So if you put in the assumption that everyone is social distancing, you get a different outcome. Um, but there's nothing that I've seen, and um, Jerry, you can correct me if, if you've seen something else that's compared like, I mean, there's been comparisons to doing nothing or like limited social distancing and full social distancing, but nothing that's looking at social distancing versus like something else I haven't seen. So this, so the Imperial College study that that's gotten a lot of play and supposedly had an effect on on President Trump, right? They said do nothing. Two point two million deaths in the United States. Uh, do something. Fewer deaths. Uh, to me, that's the, that's the public policy side of it, right? I mean, it, it, doing something is is not simply telling people social distance. I mean, you've got to you've got to have some government reaction to get people to social distance, they're not gonna do it on their own. You gotta close the bars, you gotta do all these things. So talk to us a little bit about, based on, on your extensive expertise in this stuff, how important is it that that range between doing nothing and doing something? Um, I, it's, it's very important. So if you just think of it in terms of like the biological side, if you limit the contact that you have with people, you can't spread the disease. So having, ha doing something is already minimizing the amount of people that are gonna be contracting it, or you know, like um, Jerry was talking about, lengthening the time between those, those contacts that you're gonna have and giving the healthcare system more time to accommodate because um, I'm from Washington State, so all my friends and family are up there and a lot of them are working in hospitals and you know, just anecdotally, the things that they're saying is that they're already on the verge of being overwhelmed and they already don't have masks. They're deciding, should I use a mask for this and not use a mask for this? And so if we are able to put policies in place that can have less people showing up into those hospitals and protect our healthcare workers and protect the vulnerable populations, um, I think that's huge. There's a big difference between those, those options. Yeah, so, um, um, you know, we're, Right now, we do not have a vaccine. And we also do not have a therapeutic. And we're definitely going to have therapeutics on the horizon much sooner than we will a vaccine. We do have some diagnostics, but you've seen that we've been pretty challenged of deploying diagnostics in a sufficient way uh, until um, recently. And even recently, it's, it's not uh, good enough. 
So our only tool actually comes down to basic public health measures. And actually basic public health measures can be extremely um, important and extremely um, effective. So it comes down, you know, very essentially, you know, essentially if you can avoid exposure, you're not gonna get infected, you're not gonna get sick. Uh, but in, and if you are um, infected, either asymptomatically or symptomatically, you do not want to expose others. And so that's really the basis of social separation. Now, implementing so social separation is pretty challenging on a public policy, you know, public policy uh, venue because the models yeah. have shown, and actually the models, are, uh, are, a lot of them are coming from pandemic influenza preparedness that was started back in the 2007, 2008 time in a very serious way. And um, where it, it, it and it's based on Neil Ferguson's uh, recent WHO report that you mentioned, Greg, and that um, to, for social separation at the community level, for them to have uh, effect, they need to be fairly aggressive and they need to be implemented early. And if you, if you just try to piecemeal uh, social separation, community intervention measures, you're going, you may not be very effective. And so that's why we're seeing some fairly aggressive, comprehensive uh, social separation community inter, uh, uh, based interventions that are, that are happening right now over the United States and some communities more aggressive than other communities. So it really comes down, that's one of our only tools that we have in the toolkit until we can have other um, uh, countermeasures come along, but they can be very effective. So I want to ask a, a question about this. You know, we some of the stuff that you see, kind of uh, from from uh, from experts and from uh, kind of quality journalism, is comparisons across how different countries have responded, and the different types of social distancing or public health or public policy measures they've taken. Jerry, you mentioned the kind of one end of the extreme, which is the Chinese response, and uh, use the word draconian there. Maybe we could ask a little bit about what uh, kind of what that was and what were the um, kind of consequences for China as a response. I know, for example, today when we're going to get to watch out is uh, uh, Modi of India just announced uh, everyone in, Ch in India was going, all 1.3 billion people were to stay home for three weeks um, as another kind of pretty extreme, uh, extreme measure to stop the spread. But there's also been, you know, in other East Asian context, places like South Korea, cases like um, how Taiwan's dealt with it. Um, and uh, compared to, for example, how Western and Northern Europe have, have responded. So um, have you been able to glean or, or have public health experts been kind of identifying the degree to which, you know, you mentioned early and kind of aggressive, is there variation across how South Korea and Italy and Spain and um, some of these other countries, the US, in how early and how aggressive the responses have been? And has that led to a flattening of the curve even without uh, kind of a treatment or a vaccine? Have other countries been able to use some of these strategies either to flatten the curve or because of how they behaved, not flatten the curve? Sure, let me, I'll take it first and then I'll throw it over to Dr. Blackburn. So actually just look at China, we'll start with China. And, and, and I think we're all aware that it was pretty, um, um, in, in Wuhan and Hubei province, it was pretty severe in there, in there. Guess what? That was mitigated. That was mitigated. What if they hadn't have done that? Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> and then look outside of Hubei. Actually, it's a, it's a lot less severe in the rest of China outside of Hubei province. And so even in Hubei province, that was mitigated. And then that also then spared the rest of China in, in a pretty significant way. Now you look at some other countries, and I don't think, yeah, I'm going to go back to that. Most people don't realize that what happened in Hubei, Wuhan and Hubei was actually mitigated. And that's, you know, that's the community mitigation social, that was just implemented too late, but it was still mitigated and it would have been a lot worse. And then, so in that case, containment kind of failed, but through these kind it was, of- It was, it was, measures, it was, it was yeah, containment, containment failed. And you could say mitigation failed because it was implemented too late, but it would have been worse had they not done what they did. And then it definitely spared the rest of China because the rest of China had a much lower case uh, level and, and death rate outside of China. Now you look at, now there's some other really good comparisons 
and um, and that's Singapore, Taiwan, um, and they took some aggressive actions, but they also had a lot of testing that was important. But they were really uh, very good at their containment strategy, and and then you compare it to Italy, and Italy, you know, got out of control, and it's still a it's extreme crisis uh, in Italy, and and their hospital systems have been overwhelmed, and you're seeing some uh, you know extremely uh, gut wrenching things that are happening in their ICUs and, and very, very difficult decisions that, that physicians are having to make about the patients who live and, and die. Uh, and so, and then South Korea almost got out of control. Then really the, the big lessons learned with, with Korea was the ability that they were able to ramp up and roll out their testing, essentially almost testing their, everybody in their entire country. And they could, you know, make more um, localized you know, decisions about who needs to be isolated and, and so forth. They still had a lot of cases, but they really mitigated the deaths and they really mitigated and they, they stopped that curve from going out of, out of control. And so th those are some of the country comparisons, you know, within a country and, and comparing, you know, um, uh, different countries. So yes, the world is learning from what we've observed in other countries very early on. And that's part of the lessons observed at the United States and our, our own state, Texas, they were looking at those other countries and what happened and when they took these actions. So we are trying to learn those lessons. Dr. Blackburn, do you have anything to maybe add to that I missed? Um, no, I, I just, I'll add on to that. I, I really think timing is really important. So when you talk about every country is, is I mean, there are some differences with like Taiwan and South Korea, definitely, in terms of the, the targeting and local, like uh, specific measures, like um, more localized, but every country is taking relatively similar measures, but it's about when they're taken, which is having the, the biggest difference. So if you wait too long and it, it spreads too far, then you're going to have less of an impact once that's actually implemented. And was this the case in, did Italy eventually kind of put some more serious mitigation measures in play? And, and has that, was it just way too late? I mean, is that kind of the takeaway from Italy? Uh, yeah, I, that would be, that'd be my opinion on it. It was just too late. You know, they let, people were uh, still wandering around, touring uh, big sites and doing all this stuff, uh, like, what, three weeks ago, maybe? So, yeah, it was just too late. So I think the immediate follow-up question that I'm really interested in what the two of you have to say is we've made some measures. Um, there's some debate about whether they're uh, aggressive enough um, as part of the debate I'm hearing. The consequences for the economy as a, uh, as a result of the aggressive measures is something that I want to get to. Um, but where, where were we in this kind of instituting real mitigation measures after containment failed. I mean, are we doing that now, I guess, is, is one relevant question. And if we are doing that now, are we Italy or are we South? I mean, we're not South Korea in terms of the amount of testing and stuff, but are we Italy or are we closer to, you know, Taipei or to Taiwan or, or somewhere else? Where are we on this kind of exponential growth? Have we already waited? too long in some ways? What are your senses on that? Well, I don't, I, I, actually, Dr. Black, why don't you go first? <laughs> okay, um, so, so I will, I'll, I'll preface this by stating this is my opinion. Um, and my opinion is we really should have taken actions much sooner. Um, and, and I'll just give like a really small scale example because this is a, a personal example. Uh, the, you know, the bars on around College Station were open for St. Patrick's Day and they were closed down the day after. So you had hundreds and hundreds of students going out and drinking all together on St. Patrick's Day when, you know, that should have, that should have been something that we as a community looked at and said, you know, this is probably going to draw a lot of people out. Let's, let's take this action before that happens rather than after. Um, so that's just a small scale example, but my opinion is we're, we've been um, a little bit slower than we should have been. And I wanna, I wanna say something also, I wouldn't categorize containment as failure. Viruses, you know, don't respect borders. Um, and it's extremely hard you know, in our globalized world, even with tribal restrictions and travel bans. And in fact, you know, the travel ban was, was put in place well into what would, you know, be the Chinese New Year. And even the draconian measures taken at Wuhan and Hubei province back in, you know, toward the end of, you know, mid to, in, uh, mid to third week in January, a lot of people already traveled. 
uh, you know, around the world. And, and so, but I wouldn't, still wouldn't categorize the containment as a failure. In fact, the containment was to try to, to mitigate, you know, you know, more spread of the virus uh, to other countries and the United States as well. It, I think it, it, um, um, it, it would be worse had we not done that. Um, but, you know, I agree with Dr. Blackburn, um, their communities. Um, I, I think it, we, were, we were slow on the start to seriously begin to think about the mitigation measures in any given community in the United States. Um, but uh, I, on the other hand, I've been really impressed though, um, how people began to really take the virus seriously at one point when it became clear that uh, we had to, we had to, this inflection point from containment to mitigation. And I think it became clear uh, that some were talking, including me, at some point in time, you know, we, we were on uh, the similar curve, and I think we still are. If you look at the outbreak curves um, of, of Italy, Italy is still going up. Although the last couple of days, there's been a little bit of a, you know, looks like it might be reaching the peak, but we don't know yet. But, but we're only like two weeks behind Italy on that curve. If you just, if you lay those two curves out, um, they, it, the slope of the curve looks very, very similar. Um, but, and so that's why actually in the United States, we've begun to take these, this extremely seriously. Did we start early enough? Time will tell. And, but it takes also a couple of weeks to see any impact of the social and community interventions take place because, you know, we have an incubation period of two to 14 days, you know, and then, and then uh, it takes another, the median time seems to be about five or six days uh, incubation period. And then you factor on another five or six days to show symptoms. So it may take, you know, at least two weeks before you can see an impact on, on the, the outbreak curve. So uh, talking about uh, the, the contagion in the U.S., uh, New York City and the area surrounding New York City has become the epicenter, at least so far. And I think that's completely understandable. Uh, large population center, people close, packed close together, lots of international travel. But uh, Christy mentioned Seattle and, and, and uh, the Pacific Northwest as another center. So why, why Seattle? Have we been able to figure out why Seattle was one of the earliest places where the virus struck in, in, uh, in large numbers? Well, um, Dr. Blackburn, she, this, is, this is near and dear to her, her heart. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I would say just from growing up in the Seattle area, that it's probably because we have a very large Chinese population. I think the Asian population in the state of Washington is 15% of the population total. And so there's a lot of people who travel back and forth on a regular basis. So I would say that's, that's probably one of the main reasons that, we, that it first showed up there. In, in the nursing home, you know, when it got into a nursing home as well, I think is a kind of a critical thing is we, I think we understand now that um, you know, the, the vulnerable populations um, happen to be um, those over 60. You know, I, I count myself in that, that category, um, but it's also um, uh, the vulnerable populations also include those that um, have a comorbidity or, or another underlying health condition. And if you look at the United States population, you think of the numbers. Um, so that vulnerable population, they're 70% of that population, um, it, it, it does fall in that over 60 category, but um, in the 18 to 59 year old category, there's, there's still uh, another 30% of the population that falls in that category. And the total population of that vulnerable, vulnerable population is almost 110 million people. And so, you know, the, 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 the number of people in this vulnerable population is still quite high. And we have a total population of, you know, 330 million in, in the United States. Yeah. The good news is I learned from the Lieutenant Governor that uh, Greg here as my more elder uh, co-host might be willing just to sacrifice himself for us younger generations. Um, and I, I must say in advance, Greg, I really, appreciate your uh, public service sacrifice for us us young folks you can go screw yourself Bola. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> where's your dedication to public service yeah L L lieutenant governor patrick uh has his own opinions and i you know i 
I fully endorse his willingness to throw himself into the breach. Well, well uh, if you change your mind, let me know. I can, you know, uh, I don't know how to, how to pass it along. Um, but uh, um, so this gets to a couple of, of policy responses. Um, and we, we've kind of, I think, laid out the picture of how we, how we got to here and reasons for New York and Seattle being some epicenters. But we're also seeing exponential growth in Texas, uh, where, we, where we are, and in Georgia, which is, is my uh, homeland, um, and in plenty of other states. So it's, you know, we're not really, we've kind of moved on from the containment um, phase, I think, at this point in the U.S., and we're moving to the mitigation phase. And we've talked about how uh, we've had a varied responses to that. So what, what should the leadership be doing in general to help encourage mitigation strategies. And, so and I would just add that, that here in Brazos County, we just had a shelter in place uh, yeah. uh, uh, directive issued that, that takes place uh, in a couple hours from now. This is, the, this is uh, March 24th and we're, we're recording at 6.30 p.m. Central. Uh, our, our shelter in place, I think, begins in a half an hour. So, uh, Right, we shouldn't have been in bars on St. Patrick's Day, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, where do we go from here? Well, you know, first, um, I, overall, I, I, it, it, this is not just a leadership issue. This is all of our, our issue and, and all of our all of our responsibility. And you know, everybody wants to say, you know, blame the federal government or. Um, blame the local mayor and and they all you know have responsibility but we also as individuals have responsibilities you know I think uh, actually I, I was involved in a lot of pandemic preparedness back in the in the um, 06 to 20 time 2010 2011 time frame and I was at HHS and the operations center during the 2009 pandemic and it's very unrealistic to expect that the federal government can be everywhere every community and something that affects, you know, the entire United States. And, you know, it, this is just like any other kind of disaster. It, it, it comes down to the local elected officials who have ultimate kind of decision about their, their elected you know, community. And I, I, I give our um, elected officials, particularly at the local level, a lot of credit for taking these things seriously and, you know, uh, trying to implement policies in their communities where it makes sense, listening to guidance from local public health, and trying to implement what makes sense and in a very trying situation where we lack, we lack all the information we need. And so those are tough calls when you have to make, when you have to make um, um, you know, extremely difficult decisions that are gonna impact all of our lives and maybe in a profound way. And when you have low confidence information, we're, we're kind of in that situation, but it's not all that low confidence because we're seeing some of the serious impacts that can happen, like in Italy, for example. And so these are these are tough 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 calls at, at every level. And so I think you've heard, you know, recently about you know it, it this is locally implemented, state managed, and the federal government has got to assist. And so what you are seeing now playing out with the mitigation mitigation strategies, um, there is a big focus on uh, spreading, uh, reducing the infection um, and spread of infection across our, our communities and. And everybody's got decision authorities, but you and I, as individuals, have our responsibility as well to keep our six, to keep our six, you know, um, feet amongst uh, from other other people to try to mitigate that that spread. So, um, I, I think a lot of people are taking it seriously. There are pockets, you know, like the Northgate when the students uh, uh, weren't maybe uh, <clears throat> following the advice. But I think you know that's, that's one of the, the things that you know we have, we probably haven't done a good enough job of communicating you know, the responsibility in this case locally, you know, why it's important that we got to take care of the Aggie family, no matter what demographic we fall in. Um, and so, you know, like that, so I'll stop and throw it over to Dr. Blackburn and let her um, uh, add her, her thoughts. Yeah, so I'm just going to move a tiny way, like it's related to policy, but I'm going to, I'm going to step a little bit away from policy. And I think one of the, the challenges is in terms of when you're talking about crisis communication, it's, it's highly, highly important to have a consistent message. And I think that's the, one of the things that has been a challenge is that um, I, a lot of people are like, I'm not really sure what to believe because the message, at least at the federal level, 
um, to some extent changes frequently. And that makes it really hard for people to know, oh, is social distancing something that I should do? Should I, should I not go out to the bars this weekend? Should I not, uh, you know, and so when people don't really know what's happening, it, it can um, dampen the impact of whatever policies you put in place. So I would say that um, that, that has been, and, and that I, is at the federal level. I would not say I've seen any of that at the local level um, or anything. So, but it still causes confusion at the local level because they're not exactly sure what they should be doing or what's the, the um, right thing to believe in. You, and we have seen studies that have shown people's uh, belief in the seriousness of it has declined in the last month in the United States, um, which is going to make them less likely to follow the policies. Like if I could echo Dr. Blackburn just real quick, and I think actually the, the message from the highest level has been confusing. For the longest time, the message sounded like, oh, it's not a bad deal. Most people are, it, are, are just mild, and this is going to pass. And, you know, that, that, that often happens um, it all, you know, at, at high levels. We, we want to send a positive message, but, but it's got to be a realistic message. And, and even public health authorities were saying, well, 80% of the, patient, the patients will be a mild case, some of them asymptomatic. But we didn't talk enough early on about the other 20%. And it's really the other 20% is the issue. And so it's nice to know that, you know, 80% of the people who get infected are going to have mild cases, but it's the other 20% is our issue. And there are 15% of those are severe cases. And, and many of those have to have hospitalization. They're severe enough. And then some of those slide into this critical category and over 50% that slide into that criti critical category die. And so that's the issue that, that our hospitals, even with the numbers that we're see, seeing, can be quickly overwhelmed where, where physicians are having to make hard decisions about who lives and who dies. And in some countries, they're making that just on age. And if you happen to be over 60, you're not going to get the vent. You're going to get sedatives, and you're not even going to get palliative care. You're not, your family's not going to be around when you expire. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think um, I had a friend that put it in, in perspective really well. She was saying, you know, stop saying that it's only older people or it's only immunocompromised people. She's like, what you're saying when you say that is that those people don't matter. So we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be thinking about it. And I think that really puts it in perspective is that that, that matters. So we still have to pay attention to that in addition to the fact that there are all of these other things that Dr. Parker covered. So th this is a perfect segue to the fact that it's 6.40 p.m. Central Time on March 24th, and the headline of the New York Times is Trump defying experts, talks of easing restrictions by Easter. Is that a good idea? I, I, no, I'm not going to make a prediction. You know, I think one thing that we do, and I, I go back to a, a Lancet art article that actually, as soon as I read it, I, I, I emailed it to, a, to a Professor Natios, and I, you know, I think it caught his attention as well. And it was, it was an op-ed in the Lancet about social distancing, and the first two sentences of this op-ed were really the most important. And it did emphasize the importance of community, personal and community mitigation strategies, but the second sentence was about the important function of government to mitigate as much as we could the economic impacts of that. And so we have to talk about these public health interventions. And we have to also talk about the economic impact of those. And we haven't figured out how to calibrate that yet. I mean, this is really the first time in a large scale that we've tried to uh, mitigate in, in, in a long, 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 long time, you know, this kind of scale of community mitigation measures. And so with this, this is truly uncharted territory. And, but we haven't quite figured out how to mitigate and manage the economic impacts with the public health impacts. I'm not going to answer your question about what to the president said. <laughs> Christy, anything to add on that? Um, He's going to answer that. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, I think that um, it's hard, right? You have to figure out, as, as somebody who spent a lot of time working in the service industry in grad school, um, years and years and years, I still have a lot of friends that do that, so I, I understand um, a lot of people I know are being impacted personally with job loss and not knowing how they're going to pay their bills after a month from now. So I do understand the economic side is, is uh, really important, but at the same time, 
it's kind of figuring out how, how do we find a balance between making sure that we take care of the economy to the extent that we can, but we also don't um, unnecess unnecessarily cause loss of life? How do we make sure that we're doing the best that we can to, main to contain this disease and, and, per and keep people alive? I have, a, I have a, a different way of asking Greg's question that is, um, that maybe is less, uh, uh, is, is framed a little different way. Let's say that a country is in the exponential growth phase, still in the exponential growth phase, evidence is they've taken some measures, some important measures to mitigate that, but they're still in the exponential growth phase. A country that's in that phase is unlikely two weeks from then to want to return to normal, um, would be my suspicion based on what we've observed from other countries. Does that seem like a fair thing to say? I think it's going to have to be actually managed. You can't, you know, a, a pandemic is going to be something that's not, it's not going to spread across the entire United States at one time. It is going to be something that's going to hit community by community by community by community by community. And so I think it's, it's difficult, um, you know, for the United States to say that everybody's going to, is going to pull, um, um, pull the brake off of community mitigations in two weeks. Um, I think there may be some communities that can, and I think there's some communities that will not. And, and, but I, because these, these really kind of have to be factored on what's happening in, in our individual communities. And so I would suspect in New York, if in two weeks, if you know, New York is still seeing a, an, a, an exponential acceleration. I seriously doubt if they're going to they're going to uh, make uh, adjustments. Although I will, I think we haven't totally explored how do we. Is there other some kind of risk stratification? We haven't explored that enough on these community intervention strategies. So we're going to have to we're going to have to um, explore that more. And so there may be other mitigation strategy or risk strat risk stratifications and other ways to try to protect those vulnerable populations while some of the economic engine begins to turn back home. So we, we just have to you know, explore that a little bit more. I don't have the answer, but I've begun to think about it. And I know others are beginning to think about it because we do, we cannot just continue to keep on a shutdown mode forever. Um, yeah, and I, and I would say to that, um, Again, back to the messaging, right? The messaging of saying like we're thinking about raising restrictions implies that while we're at this exponential phase in the growth um, in the United States, that we're also thinking that we don't need to social distance anymore. So I, I would say it goes again back to that component as well as um, in potentially enforcing to people that it's not that serious and we don't have to continue. Yeah, and then one of the solutions, you know, we fortunately diagnostics and lab testing is going to be very, very important. And the quicker we can kind of roll out diagnostics in our country, you know, the better, better that we'll be able to um, understand who's who's been infected, maybe who's recovered, who's got, um, you know, maybe immune. You know, there's a whole new class of diagnostics right now. We're all focused on PCR detection of the actual virus or pieces of the virus that remain. And, but we hope, need a whole new level, uh, which is called antibody and serologic uh, survey and look at population exposure. If we can begin to get a handle on that, like who's been exposed, who hasn't, who may be susceptible, then we can make some of these risk, risk stratification things and, and go about it a little bit differently. Unfortunately, Jerry, right now, we just don't have enough data. And that's, that's what's challenging. Jerry, why were we so bad on testing? <sighs> I'm not sure if I want to talk about it publicly, but it was a, to me, it was a failure. Um, it, it was, it was just, uh, I don't, you know, that's going to be a, an after action uh, that's going to be examined uh, very, very thoroughly, but I think it was a failure. Um, and um, there's already several investigations uh, underway on that. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not only, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. You know, when you look at the success that South Korea had in, in ramping up um, and the ability that they were able to, to test even kind of early on, kind of the per capita testing, and and, um, and and we were extremely slow. We had technical problems and and et cetera, et cetera. But I think we're going to have to re-examine exactly how we do public health kind of surge diagnostics for these things in the future. And it, and it is the private sector that's kind of coming to the rescue right now on, on the lab testing. Uh, and so I think we're going to really have to re-examine re our policy and our approach and strategy in the future for kind of pandemic um, surge diagnostics because this didn't work. 
How can universities like A&M play into that? And actually, if you look at other universities, you know, that have medical centers that already had like CLIA labs, um, they, they, they played uh, a huge role. Look at it in uh, Dr. Blackburn's uh, hometown of Seattle, the University of Washington, their medical center, you know, already had kind of CLIA, which is a regular, it's, it's, it's a, it, that's just a DEX quality kind of control system for doing human type testing that, that physicians can make um, treatment decisions on. So they already had CLIA labs and they were able to kind of surge their labs and they were really kind of the backbone of the university in Washington for, for the early rollout in, in their community to support the diagnostics. So A&M actually in the future needs to play a much bigger role. We ought to get involved. Uh, we, we ought to build programs in global health, global health security at Texas A&M. We have a new biocontainment lab, uh, the Global Health Research Center. It's primarily focused for, for livestock, large animal, but it has um, it, it, it in the future uh, it, it can play a, a major role. So I think we're going to have to up our game and we have expertise and capabilities and we're probably got to do some recruiting uh, of, of faculty that can play a role in the science of global health and global health security. We've got to get in the game. So at the, uh, at the risk of asking you to uh, directly uh, respond to uh, Andrew Natios uh, as he was on the the uh, podcast. One of the things that he said to us was that this is just uh, just a uh, kind of a, a preview of other pandemics that we might have. That because of the way our uh, public health is set up, and because of our uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, that this might just be one of uh, a number of viruses that might be coming down uh, to and kind of be infectious over the next. Uh, 10 to 20 years. And so I was wondering, um, uh, do, do the two of you have any sense as to why that's the, why that's the case? Should we, is this just kind of step one into a world where we're going to have to deal with things like COVID more regularly? And um, what, what is your sense of that? The answer is yes. I'll let Dr. Blackburn elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have, I, my sense is that, yes, we are going to see more outbreaks like this. We have already seen, if you kind of go back the last 20 years, they're, they're increasing in frequency and there's increasing spillover events. And there's all of these things occurring like climate change, deforestation, all these different elements that are coming together to uh, make the emergence of new potential pandemic diseases, potentially pandemic diseases more likely. And then on top of that, um, we haven't done a great job of learning lessons from past pandemics. So that's something that we always talk about. And I think Dr. Parker uses lessons observed rather than lessons learned. And so we, I mean, uh, we wrote an article two years ago about the potential supply chain issue with masks. Um, and when I was writing my dissertation, I wrote about the issues with hospital capacity, specifically with respirators or ventilators um, and that sort of thing. So these are are problems that we've, we've known about for a long time and we've observed them as problems, but we haven't really learned them. So moving forward, I do think there will be more occurrences and we have to learn the lessons this time so that we're better prepared next time. Jerry, you, you talked about an infodemic. Well, I, I'd like to hear from both of you where you think people should go to get good information on, on this. Yeah, we, um, and, and it was the Director General of the World Health Organization that used the term infodemic uh, before he declared a pandemic, but it, it really is a, a serious problem that there's, there's just so much bad information that gets circulated in social media. There's a lot of great information that also gets so, circulated in social media. In fact, some of the information I put out on Twitter is pretty good. Um, <laughs> I'm starting to hold on. Only some of it. Wait a minute. <laughs> However, I think what what the the best recommendation that I think I want to make sure everybody hears and hears often that the best information is in your local community, and in there for COVID nineteen, the best information is your local public health authority in your local community, and then your elected official in your local community. Um, it, it's great to go out and seek other information and so forth. Um, but if you hear the latest and greatest new cure, hopefully it is, um, but there's a lot of, lot of things out there that don't make sense. And so also always validate and verify things that you might hear out in the social media sphere with what is authoritative information coming from local public health. And they get a lot of their information from state public health and, 
and the CDC. And, and I'm not saying they get it all right all the time, but they're the ones that are the most authoritative voice over time it is your, your local, the local people you know in your community and trust. And those, it really comes down to, in this case for COVID-19, is your, your lo local public health authorities. And the School Crop Institute is putting out pretty good information, yeah, too. Yeah, School Crop Institute. Christy, Christy, do you have anything to add there on other uh, sources, people, uh, in addition to their uh, local health officials? I'm not sure I can actually say that people should always be listening to their local elected officials. Um, I can't completely agree with you on that one, but I will and say local Actually, in a disaster like this, it's been pretty unprecedented. Uh, the degree of kind of... Um, um, people working together, they're putting uh, uh, apart their differences. So in a disaster like this, now I, I hear what you're saying, um, but uh, that people are trying to make the best decision they can under unprecedented time. And I think people have their best, they have their, their, their best thinking and their heart is in how to protect their citizens in their local community. They really are. And it's unprecedented, yeah. and even at the federal level, everybody's uh, holding hands and singing kumbaya until the, the, the Senate vote the last couple of days. But uh, it, it's quite different, you know, in, in an unprecedented crisis like this. But I agree with you, but... but well, uh, my, my only concern I, I, is that the local officials might be following the president's Twitter feed, um, and then they would have all kinds of incorrect information. Well, you know, that's a good point, but I think local officials, they actually are trying to, they, what I have observed, they are working hand in hand with their local public health officials and their local public health officials. It's a pretty tight community of, of, um, of listening to state public health and CDC and the World Health Organization. Um, now, again, there's always some, you know, it, they don't always get it right. And there's some political things that happen in, in all those communities as, as, as well. But public health authorities, they, they, that's in their DNA uh, to protect public, uh, the, the public health and even the emergency management community and their DNA is public safety. And so, yeah, I mean, I hear, I hear you, um, but this is kind of an unprecedented, you know, kind of, kind of time. Um, and and they, they, they may not always get it right, but they're not listening to, they're not listening to my Twitter or, or you know, everybody listens to it, but, but they were listening <laughs> to, you know, their local guy. And, or, that's I think Jerry, I think Jerry is absolutely right on this, with the possible exception of the lieutenant governor. <laughs> well, he's hardly a local official. But I would say also yeah. Dr. Fauci is a phenomenal resource. So what he has been saying is, is good quality information. He's a brilliant scientist, has been doing this for working with six different presidents. So anything that he's saying is, is good information. It's Outstanding though. He is a national treasure. Dr. Fauci is a national treasure. End of story. So um, we're getting kind of close to the end of time here. And so what I've... Not the end of times, but at the end of our time. Yeah, the end of our time. Uh, hopefully not the end of all time. Um, I think what would be helpful or what I'd like to leave the listeners with is for people who are listening to this kind of, this will probably go live in, in uh, one to two days. What, what would you say to people that are listening? Like, what should they be thinking about? What should they be trying to do? Like, how should they go about their lives given that we're still in this exponential growth curve? There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of misinformation. How, what should people do? Um, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, I mean, I would say one, please, stay home, please follow the shelter in place orders. Um, remember that it's not just for yourself, but it's for everyone else in the community. And, um, and, and everyone should be careful about jumping to assumptions. So I know everyone's kind of panicked. It's hard to get information. Um, a lot of things are changing as we learn more about it, but be careful about jumping to assumptions and also about believing everything that you read on Facebook. Yeah, I, I, I would say that, um, you know, I know everybody has got some anxiety, um, they're worried, um, but, but I, would, I would put your thoughts into a more productive thing. It's, it's, it's healthy to be concerned. It can be counterproductive to just worry. And so try to, try to take positive things and take, you know, be concerned, 
pay attention, be alert, um, you know, be prepared, um, and, but don't panic um, is really, you know, the, the message I, I would like to say, you know, take common sense approaches, you know, avoid exposing, you know, having yourself be exposed and avoid if you think that you may, um, could be um, incubating uh, the virus, uh, avoid exposing others. Very common you know, sense type things. You know, be respectful of other people, treat other people with dignity during this, this period. And by all means, since um, we're here in Aggieland, um, keep your fellow, fellow Aggies safe. Justin, I counted, you touched your face 27 times during this podcast. Not again, not again, um, I did it last time. Uh, I, think, I think what you have to do is take a bunch of Clorox wipes and just wipe them all over your face. Because I don't. Anyway, my wife you, keeps uh, Clorox wipes. We. Uh, I, we I don't. Some. I don't want you infecting your wife. <laughs> well, those, I'm, glad you that up. I'm glad you brought that up, Greg, because that really is seriously that's very important. Uh, the uh, the the all the recommendations you've heard them again and again and again and again, but the personal hygiene is extremely important. The basic public health actually is very effective. And so washing your hands with soap and water for 20 seconds, sing the happy birthday song. That's about 20 seconds as you're washing your hands cough etiquette, um, and, and if you're sick, stay home. If you feel like you need to see um, a healthcare provider, uh, please do so and call in before you go um, into the healthcare provider because they can give you uh, specific instructions about how you should re report. Um, and as Dr. Blackburn said, uh, follow the public health guidance. So just having my evening wine is, is not going to keep me safe from COVID is what I've learned today. Well, I think that'll help you um, ease the anxiety. <laughs> that is all it, it's already doing. <laughs> it couldn't hurt. <laughs> you know, if, if you're gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. Just, uh, just like don't it. share like glasses. <laughs> well, yeah, don't share glasses. Oh, man. Well, um, thank you so much. Uh, we had originally planned to have this uh, conversation um, before the pandemic and at a at our hosts at uh, Downtown Uncorked and Historic Downtown Bryan. Um, so I appreciate uh, the two of you uh, being flexible with us and moving to this online format. Um, Greg and I really think it's uh, important to have some of these conversations as there is a lot of misinformation um, out there right now and talking to actual experts because uh, while we might be able to have some debates about some of the international affairs responses and some of the policy and economic responses, neither of us are public health experts um, and will not be accused of such. So thank you so much to uh, sharing your expertise with the audience. I'm now noticing me going to touch my face. I'm gonna fix my glasses with, uh, with the back of my hand. Um, and uh, so thank you so much. I'd like to say to the listeners too, um, and particularly those of you at the Bush School who might be following along, next week Greg and I are going to do a, uh, a live recording uh, that you can join us for we're going to make a Zoom link available and be pushing it out on our Bush School and Court uh, Facebook page so you can follow along. Um, so we'll make that link available via our Facebook page and uh, be sending out through the listservs to our, to our students and the faculty and staff. So if you'd like to join us at the same time, which will be uh, next Tuesday, which is the April the 1st, right? April the 1st, is that right? And at no, 6 no, p.m. March, March 31st. March 31st. March 31st. Thank you, Greg. So March 31st at 6 p.m. Central Time, we'll be doing a live conversation and we'll be talking about uh, COVID-19, I'm sure. We'll be talking about some of the policy responses, uh, diving into some more of Greg and I's expertise, which is some of the international affairs consequences and thinking through some of the public policy responses, particularly at the uh, for some of the economic responses uh, domestically, which is something that I have some expertise in as well. And, so, and how all this plays into the 2020 presidential election. Oh, yeah, there are, still, there are still primaries, huh? We didn't talk about that at all. So we'll save that for next week. It seems we'll like maybe it's being, uh, coming to a, to a close. We'll we got to be able to vote. We need to be able to vote. That's something well, that we, I'm a little worried about. We voted here in Texas, but other places haven't voted yet. So yeah, Georgia's doing um, mail-in ballots. I saw them uh, yeah. saw them announcing. So hopefully we can uh, get that systematically done. So Jerry and Christy, thanks very much. We'll have you back for an after action and hopefully at a bar. Okay. Yes. Thank you.
Thank you so much.